The following program is being brought to you on the Voice America Business Channel. For more information about our network and to check our additional show hosts and topics of interest, please visit voiceamericabusiness.com. The Voice America Talk Radio Network is the worldwide leader in live Internet talk radio. Visit voiceamerica.com. The views and ideas expressed on the following program are strictly those of the host or guests and do not necessarily reflect the views and ideas held by the Voice America Talk Radio Network, its staff, and management. Welcome to Wagner and Winnick on the Law. For the next hour, Monterey College of Law's Dean Mitchell Winnick and law professor Stephen Wagner will discuss current legal events and public policy issues that are affecting our daily lives. They will not provide individual legal advice. If you have a specific legal problem, you're encouraged to contact a lawyer for legal assistance. If you do not have a lawyer, contact the local bar association or lawyer referral service in your community for recommendations. And now, here's Wagner and Winnick on the law. Greetings and welcome to another edition of Wagner and Winnick on the Law. I am San Luis Obispo College of Law professor and trial attorney Stephen Wagner. And as always, I am joined by my co-host, Dean and President of Monterey College of Law, San Luis Obispo College of Law, and Kern County College of Law, Mitchell Winnick. Mitch, good day to you. Good day to you, Stephen. Well, Stephen, you picked a great topic this week. Uh, it's been all across the news. Yes, it has. And uh, we're going to be talking about opioids and the widespread news stories that have been out, uh, deservingly so, I would say, related to overprescription of so-called painkillers. And those are probably broadly known, Mitch, as analgesics. Uh, medicines, prescription drugs that are prescribed to curb uh, pain, but of course there is widespread abuse and it trickles down into a lot of areas including uh, violations of criminal laws and then uh, violations of uh, medical laws that impact uh, doctors' rights to practice. So there's a lot of different ways we can go with this one, Mitch. It, no kidding. And and in addition, we, we can talk a little about the lawsuits that have been brought by cities, counties, states against the drug manufacturers, similar to what people may remember, the original lawsuits against uh, big tobacco, as they talked about it, back in the, the 1990s, and the similar attempts that have been not as, as successful uh, being brought against uh, firearm manufacturers. So these are you know, lawsuits against the manufacturers, in that case, tobacco, firearm, in this case, opio- op- opioids. Yeah, you know, Mitch, that's an interesting analogy that we could uh, work with, the idea of the manufacturer's liability. Uh, we've often heard the term, whether or not you endorse it or not, um, guns don't kill people. People kill people, right? So the manufacturer of a drug, and let's say, for instance, hypothetically, Oxycontin, uh, may potentially be the subject of a lawsuit, but ultimately we look to the distribution chain, don't we? We do, and and that's been one of the interesting distinctions in these lawsuits. Uh, The argument against tobacco that ultimately turned out to be very effective was that people were smoking cigarettes in the manner that the manufacturer intended. So there was a direct connection between the user and the manufacturer. 
and therefore on behalf of the users the lawsuit was brought and it, it was uh, people may not remember but back in 1998 that argument was a successful legal argument there was a, a massive settlement with 46 states between the large tobacco uh, manufacturers they paid out 12.75 billion billion with a b and have been continued to pay an escalating amount due to inflation from 4.5 to 9 billion dollars a year in perpetuity so so that you know when you're talking about plaintiff lawyers and trying to use the legal system to go after a manufacturer obviously that's a big shiny attractive model uh, but there's been distinction Stephen between that and opioid abuse because one of the arguments that manufacturers have used is that the intervening factor is that people have become addicted on opioids uh, by not following the direction of the manufacturers and then there's the intervening uh, factor of the doctors being the prescription you know giving prescriptions so you can see right then it's just that little basic difference uh, there's a there's a legal nuance there that's going to make this lawsuit a lot different yeah and the other thing Mitch that I think we can discuss too is the uh, fact that doctors can be both civilly and criminally uh, liable in the case of a civil suit culpable would be the better term in a criminal case for liberally distributing painkillers there are cases in fact one fairly recent in Los Angeles where there was a second-degree murder conviction obtained uh, against a doctor who was liberally distributing drugs and she was on notice or there was evidence to suggest that she was on notice of uh, the dangers because there had been prior overdoses under her watch so there are, are uh, major major implications associated with uh, the distribution of opioids and of course we can also talk about, uh, well, I can't help but talk about impaired driving because drugged driving is unfortunately uh, very, very prevalent in our nation. Well, that's exactly right, Stephen. And, and the, the other distinction that's just hugely different, that we, and we've seen it in the articles this week, that we're now talking about sixty to 65,000 people dying from drug overdoses in the United States in 2016. And, and I have to say, one of the things I, I love about doing this show is it forces you and I into additional, more of a deep dive into issues that we're aware of, but we may not know the magnitude. And, and I have to admit, this, this falls directly into that. I had no idea that, we, that the drug overdose deaths in recent years had gone up 20% that we're talking about a, a level of annual deaths that exceeds the peak of car crash deaths in 1972. It exceeds the peak of HIV deaths, and it exceeds by, uh, uh, by like 30 or 40 percent the, the largest year of gun deaths. So, I mean, that's the magnitude of what we're talking about here. Yeah, those are alarming numbers, Mitch, indeed. And you know, where, where do you want to start in terms of, of uh, control measures or, or what kind of uh, issues are probably most uh, relevant with respect to the distribution 
Well, let's, let's, talk, let's talk a little about criminal law. Okay, let's set that because I think that's probably the easiest for everyone to understand. That if somebody is buying and distributing illegal narcotics, in this case opioids as well, there are a host of criminal laws, both state and federal, aren't there? Yeah, that's, yeah, that's that. That would be sort of the black market sale of prescription drugs, and there would be. Uh, for instance, in California, there would be code sections for uh, drug sales. So really, just as anybody would, uh, let's say, be accused of selling, uh, for instance, marijuana or, or heroin, um, marijuana now would probably be, uh, although you know, personal use has now been liberalized to the point where it's not, uh, or it's been decriminalized under most scenarios. At the state uh, level. At the state level, right. uh, a sales case of prescription drugs would still be pursued criminally. So, yes, you're right. There would still be laws on the books that would prohibit that. And, and um, you're right to call out the idea of black market sales because that's, uh, it's very prevalent, um, certainly in California. And I know in New Jersey, uh, there was a major problem, too. So it's an East Coast. Ohio. Ohio. Oh, yeah. Ohio's where the, the state suits that we'll get to in a bit. So, so I think you're right. The one nuance that, that I think we all hear about, but again, if you're not personally involved in it, is, the, is what appears to happen, in the, according to literature, is that you start with a legal prescription with opioids, and then we'll talk about the liability that comes up, up with the apparent addictive nature of the drug that the allegation is that the drug companies know about. So you start with the legal uh, taking of it through a prescription that a doctor is legally entitled to give you. And that with the addition to the addiction risk and the inability now to get additional prescriptions from your doctors, because evidently that was the huge problem with basically pill mills, you know, you could just go to a doctor and they were handing these things out without a lot of scrutiny. And right. That, that Liberal uh, refilling exactly. uh, policies too, right. And and that's where there were some criminal convictions of doctors, uh, not only the, the finding of, of death that you talked about earlier, but, but literally on illegally giving out prescriptions. But when someone's cut off from that, then evidently, and I'm no chemist, but the, the move from opioids to heroin, which is much less expensive, much more available, is that it, the crossover that you have someone who may have been taking opioids for a sports injury or a work injury, totally under doctor's care, who now ends up on the criminal side that you were talking about. Yeah. yeah. And, and Mitch, you know, uh, I know that you're aware of the stories that relate to that issue that you've just raised uh, within the high school setting or the adolescent setting, because unfortunately, the shift from prescription drug use uh, to street drugs like heroin um, is very, very well documented. And the surprising part about this, and perhaps this is one of the reasons, in addition, just the shocking numbers of how many overdose deaths and the escalation of them, is that you're, you're just talking about run-of-the-mill everyday people, housewives and lawyers and high school athletes who start out with nothing more than an injury that needed to be treated with the painkiller, the analgesic painkiller of, of a, one of the opioid drugs. 
and then ends up at this other end of the spectrum where they're buying illegal heroin and Oxycontin and things of that nature. And so that that's that's the really disruptive part of this that I think has grabbed society's attention. That this could be anybody. This could be the lawyer in the office next door. And believe me, the articles are that lawyers and dentists and doctors are not immune to this. Right. So that's a great point, Mitch. And, you know, if you look at it that way, uh, I like your idea of looking at it from the standpoint of the source. And very often, as you stated, there's a legal source. So it starts with a prescription that is quite legally obtained, uh, which raises the issue of whether or not control measures are in place at the point of the original prescription. And if you look at a lot of the cases, and I know you did in preparation for today, and you look at some of the cases where doctors have been uh, defendants in cases, both civil cases and criminal cases, you see things like failure to adequately screen the patient. Uh, in other words, failure to look at whether there's history of addiction, not only with the patient, but the patient's family. So much of this really starts at the inception phase and that's why I think uh, many, many, many uh, doctors are now in the spotlight and that uh, control measures, I think, are, are much, uh, much more in need or already implicated in many cases. That's right, Stephen. And it's even one step more complicated because you have the FDA involved, Food Drug Administration, and they're involved in the scrutiny of what the uh, the pharma, pharmacy medical manufacturers or pharmacy drug manufacturers are allowed to claim in the fact sheets about a drug because that's all part of the clinical trials and the eventual packaging and selling. And, and drugs are allowed to be used for a certain set of identified purposes. And then doctors are allowed to use drugs, what they call off the sheet reasons. If they believe a drug will help a patient, they have the authority, the legal authority to give a prescription for a drug for something else. But they're relying on the drug company's information about what the side effects and possible issues are. And that's where we get the other side of this lawsuit in. So you're exactly right to focus in on you know, doctors have a primary responsibility in this entire discussion. But that's how we're getting the drug companies involved as well. The doctors are entitled to rely on the information that the drug companies are sending them about the drugs. Yeah, that's true. But we can't lose sight of the fact that it's the, it's the doctor who's got the prescription pad, right, Mitch? That's exactly right. You know, so that's, we're not seeing as many lawsuits against the doctors, but I was just explaining that's how, and we should talk about it after the break, that's how they're bridging past the doctor and basing these lawsuits against the drug company. Yeah, yeah. And lo looking to the manufacturer for potential culpability or liability, usually based on failure to warn or some kind of a defective product kind of claim. So Nuisance. I, we'll talk about nuisance. In the nuisance break. is good. Yeah. Okay. So you're setting <laughs> the table for the break. You're piling it on. When we come back, we'll continue our discussion of painkiller or prescription drug abuse. You're listening to Wagner and Winnick on the Law over Voice America Radio. We'll be right back after this short break. Don't go away. We'll be right back. 
Monterey College of Law is excited to announce that we are opening our third branch law school in Bakersfield. We are Kern County College of Law, and we are an accredited branch of Monterey College of Law, established 44 years ago. We are now accepting applications for students who will begin in summer of 2017. As with our other branches in Monterey and San Luis Obispo, Kern County College of Law offers convenient evening classes Mondays through Thursdays. At Kern County College of Law, we have a tuition rate guarantee program that freezes your tuition rate when you begin and protects you from annual tuition increases. At Kern County College of Law, our faculty is composed of highly esteemed local lawyers and judges. Dream of becoming a lawyer? Do something about it. Call me, Wendy Law Revere, Dean of Admissions of Kern County College of Law, 831-582-4000, extension 1012. For more information, This is Mitch Winnick, co-host of Wagner & Winnick on the Law. We are pleased to welcome Monterey Peninsula Surgery Centers and their related Minimus Institute as sponsors of our program. Location shouldn't keep you from the quality surgery you need. MPSC's Destination Surgical Institute features world-class surgeons, concierge assistance, and transparent bundled fees. For more information, go to www.montereysurgerycenter.com. Thank Monterey Peninsula Surgery Centers for state-of-the-art outpatient surgery. Our patients get better faster and get back to doing what they love. Out-of-towners and self-insured employers can now benefit from our quality care through our concierge division, Minimus Institute. Call 831-333-4153 or visit minimusinstitute.com to learn about how we're reducing the cost of surgery by 40 to 60% while delivering state-of-the-art care. Many people believe that law firms are pretty much the same. At Shepard Mullen, we don't. Our law firm believes that what separates us from the pack is not what we do, but how we do it. Aggressive, not conservative. Team players, not one-man bands. Problem solvers, not just legal practitioners. Our clients clearly understand and value this difference. Shepard Mullen is a full-service Global 100 law firm with more than 750 lawyers. We handle corporate and technology matters, high-stakes litigation, and complex financial transactions. From our 15 offices in the U.S., Europe, and Asia, we offer global solutions and seamless representation to our clients around the world. I am Michael Cohen, a partner in the Antitrust and International Competition Group at Shepard Mullen. I invite you to find out more about our law firm at shepardmullen.com. That's S-H-E-P-P-A-R-D. M-U-L-L-I-N dot com. Welcome back to Wagner and Winnick on the Law. We're discussing prescription drug abuse. You're listening to us over Voice America Radio. And before the break, Mitch, we were talking about uh, prescription drugs and the point of inception and the idea of the doctor's responsibility because, after all, legally obtained drugs usually start with a prescription that happens in the doctor's office. That's right, Stephen. And, and you rightfully pointed out that the early, some of the earliest cases that were brought as lawsuits, uh, civil lawsuits now, you, you mentioned a criminal case as well, but civil lawsuits were that uh, you know, the doctor failed in their responsibility to identify the risk of addiction and the actual addiction, or in some cases they were deliberately... Uh, 
writing out prescriptions beyond what they they should have known. That would be the argument. Uh, as a doctor, we're a healthy level. Uh, so so that was that was the beginning. But that's only dealing with the issue of the addiction coming from a, a fairly small source of the opioids, and those are the legal prescriptions. The, the argument is that even when the doctor cuts off the giving the prescription, so they, they now say, you've well exceeded what I think is, is healthy for you or what is medically necessary. They cut them off. Uh, the question is, are they then released from any of the future liability that that person who is now addicted goes on, uses illegally obtained drugs or heroin, and then has an overdose. That is obviously a tragedy for the family, but it's a cost to the cities, the counties, and the states as well. Yeah, that's, so you're, you're introducing the residual impact, and I think we're about to go there, Mitch, and then also, I think embedded there is the idea of looking to the manufacturer as a responsible party. And then that raises the issue of the addictive properties that all the analgesics have. I think just by definition, there are addictive properties. And that comes with, with the onus placed on the manufacturer and the doctor with respect to apprising the patient of uh, the potential hazard of becoming addicted. And, and as you well know, and I think most of our listeners realize that when a manufacturer distributes drugs, there is going to be disclaimers and very, very uh, detailed descriptions of the addictive properties. So what happened in the earliest cases is there was, there was a point in time that, and, and this is when one of the manufacturers of, of opioids was found liable. And actually, in that case, there were some criminal actions as well against a couple of the executives. And at that time, it goes to exactly the point you just made. It was determined by a court that the information that the companies were putting out was that they determined it to be legally false and misleading. In, 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 inadequate, for sure. Correct. And that and that that was the basis of the liability. Since that time, and since those cases were judged against at least one of the pharmacy companies, there's no question that the pharmacy companies have changed some of their notices, and they've funded addiction programs, and they've given greater alerts to the doctors about the risk. And as you said at the top of the show, it would be pretty hard for anybody not to be aware of the addictive nature of opioids in this day and time. So they've, they've, they argue that they've cleaned up their act, that they've done all that a manufacturer is required to do. They're just producing it. As you said, people kill people, guns don't kill people. You know, that it's, there's a doctor that now has the information, there's a patient that has to make choices, and that they're just making the drug. But as we're seeing, that there are those that are arguing that that is not going to be an adequate uh, reason for not having its liability. It's certainly not going to get them away from the lawsuit. So there are several lawsuits that are now pending. Yeah, and you know, Mitch, I think uh, the the prolific uh, use or misuse and abuse of prescription drugs has uh, given rise to certain states, counties, 
looking to address the residual impacts and the costs associated with combating this. And I think it would be probably a good time to talk about what's going on in the state of Ohio. Yes, Ohio has really become a focal point. Uh, I believe the statistics showed that in, in Ohio, there are more deaths the first quarter of this year from overdoses than in all of last year. So that's not just a 19 or 20% increase. That's a, a hugely alarming uh, increase for that, those jurisdictions. And so the, the state filed a suit, and then a number of the cities themselves have filed a lawsuit. And in addition to what you and I have already talked about, which is the claim that manufacturers are, are still providing false and misleading information about the drugs and the risk of addiction, they've added an element of public nuisance. What do you think about that? Lee? Yeah, I, I saw that, Mitch, and I think it's, it's I'm going to call it creative right now because I'm, I'm not sure about uh, how effective that theory will be, but uh, it does, it, it, let's, let's talk about it because I think uh, Ohio is to be, uh, I think, uh, applauded for their efforts, first of all, in recognizing the widespread spread problem and the fact that they're actually looking to the residual impact, which is really a drain on resources and uh, topics such as uh, emergency personnel and interventions that are required for overdose cases, the spike in emergency room visits due to overdoses, there is a tremendous amount of resources devoted to combating addiction and the various problems that come with it. So I think Ohio is, is taking a look at a nuisance theory um, as a means of really looking to recoup losses for this. And I think overall, Mitch, and you tell me if you agree, I think the, the overarching goal would be to sort of curb the problem in some way. So this is the, the way this works out. And I can remember back, I don't remember the case name in law school, but I can remember in torts, and in, in torts is a legal term or area of law in which there's there's been a, a civil harm, and you're trying to recover a civil harm, and, and almost always torts are remedied by telling, tell me to, telling someone to take an action, stop an action, or pay money. It's an oversimplification. Probably wouldn't pass the test, but that's the general idea of a tort. So, I remember the idea of nuisance, and I struggled with it because with the concept of nuisance comes almost a strict liability, which says if you know you're doing something that is the legal term of a public nuisance, you do it at the risk of just being liable for the damages it causes, period, end of story, and you as the manufacturer or the one who's created the nuisance has to then weigh the balance of to continue to provide it or to take additional steps to curb it. And it's just the public policy of shifting the burden from the user to the manufacturer. And, and I have to say, I struggled with that idea in law school. What about you? Yeah, yeah. exactly. Where to place the ultimate uh, liability is is a is an interesting concept. Uh, I mean, usually there's an injunction that's issued when there is evidence of a nuisance, meaning that um, the party causing the problem is enjoined from continuing in that activity. Uh, there could be a, a mandatory 
uh, injunction in place that is designed to actually stop the conduct. So in this case, we know that there's lawful, helpful benefit from the drug. So the drug companies are going to say, wait a minute, look at all the, the uses we have. We can't do away with opioids. There's that, that it's a medical necessity that I'm assuming that is their fundamental argument. So we're merely producing what is a medical necessity. The states, on the other hand, are saying that if you look at the profit they've made and the volume the volume, not that they're doing it, but the volume that they're producing, and then the information they're producing about it, that it tips the balance. And the state says, it's not our fault that we're having to pay more ambulance. The, the whole list you provided, ambulance, emergency services, hospital services, police, fire, everything that gets involved. They're saying, so if you want to keep doing it and making billions of dollars, well, it may not be that it's fine, but we want to be reimbursed for the cost. So you're profiting from producing it. At, you're creating the nuisance that we can prove by the sheer volume. Now, it's $56 billion of loss nationally, and we're talking about fifty to $60,000 deaths nationally. So we know what the number is. We know what the cost is. Why should we, the public, pay it? You, the profit-making company, should pay it. Yeah. So that, I assume, Mitch, and I don't know the intricate details of the, the lawsuits or the efforts undertaken in Ohio, but I assume that it's placing the spotlight on virtually everybody in the distribution chain of prescription drugs. Yes. Yes. Because we haven't talked as much about the, you know, there's the, the pharmacies that have to check the, the prescriptions. They're the doctors that have to uh, issue them. Ohio is saying it's not just that. Remember, that's a portion of the cost. But the when these individuals end up addicted and move to illegal drugs, they're saying that was predictable. That's the that's the argument of the nuisance. You could predict the danger and the injury, and therefore a higher level of liability, maybe as high as strict liability, ought to be placed on you as the manufacturer. And therefore, we don't care whether they died of heroin that was shipped in from, you know, China. Uh, it still started with that drug that you produced, the doctor prescribed, the individual became addicted, and now they're on heroin, they die, and the cost is us. So, I mean, you can see it's a bit of a tenuous stretch, but that's what the argument is in the lawsuit. And what's the status of of some of the lawsuits, are they actually before the courts right now, Mitch? They are before the courts. They're they're on their early stages. Uh, in at least one of the lawsuits, one actually out here by us, Santa Clara County, back in I believe it was 2015, uh, brought a lawsuit under the same general idea. Uh, that one brought another wrinkle in that we haven't really talked about. But it was that case. The drug company said wait a minute, wait a minute, everybody's forgetting the FDA. The FDA has a role in this. Why should the courts be inserting themselves in how to regulate what the manufacturers should do with opioids? That's the FDA's job. And you should wait and see what the FDA is going to do about this before the courts step in. In that case, the court did. They, they didn't toss out the lawsuit 
but they put it on hold until there was a, a they're waiting for additional information from the FDA. So uh, if the exception of those early cases of wrongdoing when there was a finding of false and misleading, the rest of these cases, I would have to say, are still pretty much in their nascent stage. They're just yes. getting started. You're raising the issue be, uh, of the potential conflict between federal law and state law. Exactly. In that case, because the FDA would be a federal agency and they, they would have occupied the field, so to speak, and have jurisdiction in many ways. And yet the states also probably have a right to assert uh, rights too and, and, and engage in enforcement efforts also. And we've talked about who gets to bring the lawsuit. Again, that's why this is all so very complicated. Because let's say if you're the family of someone who died from an overdose, okay, we understand that damage and your right to look to the possible cause. If you're the city where that person died, well, we go, well, why do they get to bring the lawsuit? And so it's, it gets more complicated, and that's why this idea of nuisance, I believe, has now emerged as a possible claim. When we come back, Mitch, let's talk and introduce the, the issue of criminal laws, uh, again, because it's in lockstep with the idea of residual impact. And I want to talk about impaired driving and drugged driving a little bit, because that's a, a major issue. And if you look at the empirical statistics there, those kind of cases are on the rise. And I think that'll dovetail into a number of other discussions. You're listening to Wagner and Winnick on the Law over Voice America Radio. We're talking about prescription drug abuse, and we will continue our conversation. When we get back from this short break, please don't go away. If you've been considering a new career, now is the perfect time to look into the field of law. Whether you're fresh out of school or just thinking about change, the San Luis Obispo College of Law is now accepting applications for 2017 admission. The San Luis Obispo College of Law is an accredited branch of the Monterey College of Law School. You can get a law degree from an accredited law school right here in San Luis Obispo. San Luis Obispo College of Law's highly esteemed faculty is comprised of local judges and lawyers. San Luis Obispo College of Law classes are held conveniently in the evening. The San Luis Obispo College of Law's campus is located at 4119 Broad Street at Tank Farm in Slow. Make today the first step in changing your life. Attend an informational session and get answers to your questions. Call Dean of Admissions Wendy LaRiviere at 805-439-4096. Visit slowlaw.org for more information. That's slowlaw.org. Did you ever wonder, what is the basis of international law? Where would I even go to look up international laws? This is law professor Michael Cohen with a reminder that there are times that you can take the law into your own hands. The United Nations Treaty Collection is an online database that provides information on more than 560 treaties and international legal documents deposited with the United Nations. The database also indicates which countries have signed, ratified, or lodged objections to the treaties. These legal agreements are the basis of international law. They cover topics such as human rights, disarmament, commodities, refugees, the environment, and the law of the sea. 
Lately, we have heard political candidates making lots of statements about enforcing international law. But if you want to be better informed about the actual laws in place, go to treaties.un.org. That is treaties.un.org. The U.S. Constitution has recently created national headlines in the debate about filling the vacancy created by the sudden death of Supreme Court Justice Antonin Scalia. The president and certain members of Congress are at odds about what the Constitution requires when there's a vacancy on the Supreme Court. Who is right? And how can everyday citizens be informed enough to know the answer? This is Mitchell Winnick, co-host of Wagner and Winnick on the Law, with a reminder that there are times that you can take the law into your own hands. ConstitutionCenter.org is a website published by the National Constitution Center. The center was established by Congress to provide information about the United States Constitution on a nonpartisan basis. If you want information about the Constitution's history and what it means today, go to ConstitutionCenter.org and form your own opinion about the law. Welcome back to Wagner and Winnick on the Law. If you are just joining us, we've been talking about prescription drug abuse, and we're going to shift our topic to some of the criminal laws. And Mitch, what I wanted to do was introduce the idea of uh, drugged driving, because uh, I think most of our listeners realize that drugged driving uh, is a problem. Certainly, most people are acquainted with or have heard of laws that are on the books that uh, prohibit driving under the influence, but most people think of uh, alcohol impairment. And the reality is that there are laws on the books in all of the states that address the issue of driving under the influence of a drug. And what I wanted to introduce is that many times that drug is a prescription drug. So even though the drug is legally obtained initially, if you drive under the influence of the drug, you could be subject to prosecution for impaired driving uh, under the influence of a drug. And it could be street drugs or prescription drugs. Well, it's very unfortunate, but we had a very high-profile case of that that uh, I'm sure Tiger Woods did not want to become the poster child of the issue you just raised. But at the moment, he is because he was recently uh, found in his car. It appears that he was under the influence of prescription drugs that he was entirely legally entitled to have, but that didn't mean that he was entitled to get into a motor vehicle and drive it at 3 a.m. in the morning. That's absolutely right. And the other thing I can add, uh, Mitch, that would be a novel idea to many people is that in California, we actually have a statute that prohibits driving under the influence while addicted and that is embodied in the statute 23152C of the vehicle code, meaning that if the prosecution can prove that the driver was addicted at the time, they may pursue uh, criminal charges against that driver. So, Stephen, is that is that a way to legislate? You've talked many times to help inform everybody the difference between you know men's ray and active ray. The the that, that brings an intentionality. Is that what the intent of that is? Cause yeah, it does. You know, Mitch, what's interesting about that statute, driving while addicted, is that uh, it is a permissible theory um, by which the prosecution can proceed, even though 
it has trappings or hallmarks of prosecuting a status crime. In other words, targeting people that fit within a certain category, those being addicted. But it passed legislative scrutiny. And if the prosecution can prove that there is evidence of addiction uh, and the person was driving while they were in uh, a state of addiction, perhaps in a crash phase or in some kind of a phase where they were uh, definitely uh, compromised by virtue of their addiction, it can be prosecuted. It's a pretty rare statute, but uh, it's an interesting one that I think does signal that there's widespread problems with prescription drugs and street drugs. Wow, I think of I, just a million ideas come to mind. I had no idea there was such a law in California. I can see all of the challenges and problems of trying to prove, prove that up. Uh, but I can see what the law is intending to get to, that it's not just the active part of, of being impa- impaired, but there's other, there's other things that can cause impairment. And in this case, you're saying that the, I could see where you're talking about the crash phase. Somebody might not actively been on a drug, but they're clearly impaired. And I guess the, the intention of adding addiction is they know it. I guess, is that what your point is? You know, that, 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 that is right. That's right, Mitch. Yeah, absolutely. And, you know, the, the idea of the term drug, Mitch, is very, very liberally described by statute in California. So it's embodied in our vehicle code section, uh, along with the description of impaired driving. And the, the term drug is really described as any kind of substance that affects the central nervous system and compromises the driver's ability to safely operate a vehicle. So you can see with that description that it casts a very wide net in terms of what substances qualify as a drug and the action always centers on, certainly with impaired driving cases, whether or not the driver could safely operate a motor vehicle and that then comes down to the officer's investigation and evaluation of the driver. Well, Stephen, I'm glad you brought this up because you know, I was talking earlier about the cost of opioid addiction. And we're talking about you know, $50, $60 billion. I, I am pretty certain that that cost is only looking at the very narrow definition of the cost of the states for opioid addiction. We, if you add in all of the, the driving while impaired costs of car wrecks, injuries, and even even motor vehicle deaths, that number, uh, I can't even imagine, it must escalate two, three, four times. Oh, absolutely, oh, absolutely Mitch. It's staggering. I mean, I, I know firsthand the, the drain on resources and what it takes to investigate an impaired driving case. If you really think about it, from the traffic stop to the effectuation of an arrest and then a transportation of the suspect to uh, a jail or a facility for a blood test or a breath test, you think about the clock time for that entire investigation and the sheer volume of cases like this, it is a drain on resources, absolutely a drain on resources. And you've had personal experience, because I know that 
in in your history, you've had you've worked a number of times in the prosecution for motor vehicle homicides. That's and, right. Right. And I'm sure a disproportionate number of those are deal dealing with impaired driving. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Definitely, Mitch. And then you've got collisions and an investigation in, involving the collision sequence, and it's a tremendous, tremendous uh, undertaking. Uh, by, you know, great devotion by multi-agencies, Mitch. You've got emergency personnel, you've got law enforcement. So uh, I think that all comes into what's going on in Ohio as I looked at some of the stories because they were looking very carefully at the residual impact all the way from, let's say, a crash scene to the hospital. And if you follow the trail um, and look at it from a resource devotion standpoint, there is a lot, a lot that goes into investigating cases. Well, and cycling back to, to what Ohio is trying to do, uh, the, the drug company's argument is going to be that they are doing far more than they've ever done in the past to curb the abuse and to limit the effect. But the, the state and the cities are saying that may be true, but look at the numbers. You know, they're, they're escalating at this alarming rate. So clearly whatever you're doing is not working. And so and I think you see the same thing in this issue of impaired driving. The escalation of the numbers are tell you that the prevention side of it is not effective. So it's, it's interesting. We don't end up with very many of our laws that we talk about on these shows where we're saying, well, maybe the law itself is inadequate. But I got to say that this this may be one of those cases where we don't know where the law can best work. Because clearly, from your standpoint, you would say the criminal law is not really a curb in it. And yet the, the, the cost, the, the criminal liability is, is significant uh, in the penalties and imprisonment, right? I mean, it's, it's, it should be a curb of behavior, but it, that part's not working. Yeah, well, that's true. You know, Mitch, you had, you had shared on our break, uh, I, I, I don't know if it's going to turn into a hypothetical, but the idea of scenarios where someone under the influence, and let's just say, I'll try to set it up as a hypothetical, and hopefully I don't corrupt it too much, but let's say that there is a shooting incident, and the shooter, the suspect, uh, is under the influence of a drug. So now we've got a firearm and a drug in in the hypothetical, I know this. I've I've seen many of your criminal law exams. This sounds like one of those. <laughs> oh, uh-oh. but that was pretty innocuous thus far. Yeah. I'm waiting for you to cloud it, shake it right. up a little bit. Right. So what's interesting is that you know we started to talk, early on. We talked about you know, tobacco and handguns are two of the major manufacturer type of lawsuits, where uh, through civil liability they attempted to curb behavior. And in tobacco, they did it with money, you know, by trying to, you know, have the companies put $12 billion up and $9 billion a year to offset these kind of costs that Ohio is claiming that opioid abuse is, is causing. Um, in firearms, the attempt to sue the gun manufacturers when a criminal caused damage by using a gun the answer in that case was a federal statute. 
So the PLCAA, the Protection of Lawful Commerce in Arms Act, and what happened in that case is there's a federal law that says you cannot sue a gun manufacturer if a criminal act using a gun is what caused the injury. So they're just saying by statute, the criminal intervention is is what bars the lawsuit against the handgun manufacturer, the firearm manufacturer. There is no such statute at the moment for drugs. So you raise an interesting point, Stephen, that that scenario, a drug-addicted, drug-crazed individual with a gun causes injury. You're prohibited by statute from suing for the injury caused by the gun, but there's no statute that prohibits you from suing the drug manufacturer for causing the addiction. How about that? Yeah, so that's going to center on negligence and whether or not there's evidence to suggest that the drug manufacturer did play a part or is liable under some kind of a tort theory, you know, Mitch. But also embedded in that hypothetical is a potential defense uh, that the shooter might use. And that's going to be a mens rea or a mental state defense, potentially, because if the shooter's... uh, ability to process is compromised by the drug, it might serve to negate one of the elements of a crime. So that's uh, an interesting um, intertwined issue there. Yeah, I think as as we've talked about all of this, the, there's no question that the, uh, from a legal standpoint and from trying to identify a legal remedy for this opioid uh, crisis in America, I don't think we have our finger on which area of the law will help the most. No, I think that's right, Mitch. And, you know, I'm going to watch what's going on in Ohio because I think it really does highlight the issue of, uh, you know, where does the buck stop? And I think Ohio is looking at it like it's such a prolific problem, but we do have a genuine concern about the resource drain. And I think it might end up getting the attention of all the players in the distribution chain. So I'm going to watch out for that one. I think you're right, Stephen. And as we saw in tobacco, you know, at the point that 46 states joined together, then they had some momentum. Right now, it's really episodic. There's, there's Ohio's the leading, uh, but there were suits in Illinois, Kentucky, Mississippi, uh, one in California. So there isn't quite the momentum from the standpoint of jurisdictions bringing suits. So it, it, we're not there yet, but yes, I think you're exactly right. We should, we should watch it. And for those who are just fascinated by the nuance of how the law works and what you and I have been talking about, you know, this one is going to be very complicated. So you're going to have to follow it carefully. Yeah, great, Stephen, great. another great topic. That's great. Well, let me remind everyone that you can you can hear an archive version of today's show at wagnerandwinnick.com. You can also hear it on voiceamerica.com. As we remind you each week at the end of each show, if you don't know the law, know a lawyer. I never
ever finished college. I had a baby and it was time for me to do more with my life. I wanted to be an attorney and be able to help people, but I didn't know I could go to law school without a four-year degree. I decided to go to Monterey College of Law because it's local and I was working full-time and had a child. So quitting work and going to a full-time law school was not really an option for me. Being able to go to school at night and the cost of tuition allowed me to graduate debt-free. Obviously my income has increased. My schedule is more flexible now and it does allow me to spend more time with my daughter. My name is Brandi Luis and I'm an attorney at law. Did you dream of becoming a lawyer? You should know that you can apply to Monterey College of Law without a bachelor's degree. I'm Wendy Law Revere, Dean of Admissions of Monterey College of Law. We're accepting applications now for our spring start. Dream of becoming a lawyer? Do something about it. Find out how at montereylaw.edu. This is Mitch Winnick, co-host of Wagner & Winnick on the Law. We are pleased to welcome Monterey Peninsula Surgery Centers and their related Minimus Institute as sponsors of our program. Location shouldn't keep you from the quality surgery you need. MPSC's Destination Surgical Institute features world-class surgeons, concierge assistants, and transparent bundled fees. For more information, go to www.montereysurgerycenter.com. Thank Monterey Peninsula Surgery Centers for state-of-the-art outpatient surgery. Our patients get better faster and get back to doing what they love. Out-of-towners and self-insured employers can now benefit from our quality care through our concierge division, Minimus Institute. Call 831-333-4153 or visit minimusinstitute.com to learn about how we're reducing the cost of surgery by 40 to 60% while delivering state-of-the-art care. Shepard Mullen is a full-service Global 100 law firm with more than 750 lawyers. We handle corporate and technology matters, high-stakes litigation, and complex financial transactions. From our 15 offices in the United States, Europe, and Asia, we offer global solutions and seamless representation to our clients around the world. You might ask, what is the Shepard Mullen difference? The answer is you. Our clients are our focus. Every Shepard Mullen attorney and staff member is issued a plaque listing our client service expectations. We regularly give Clients First awards to attorneys and staff members who go the extra mile for our clients. Client service is not just words, it is part of our culture and permeates everything we do. I am Michael Cohen, a partner in the Antitrust and International Competition Group at Shepard Mullen. I invite you to find out more about our law firm at shepherdmullen.com. That's S-H-E-P-P-A-R-D-M-U-L-L-I-N dot com. Have you friended us on Facebook yet? Why not? Just go to Facebook.com forward slash Voice America or search for the keywords Voice America. Once you are part of our Facebook network, you'll receive daily messages about what's happening with our shows, this week's featured guests, and new happenings at the Voice America Talk Radio Network. And you can add your voice to the always active discussions on our timeline. Just go to Facebook.com forward slash Voice America or search for Voice America. The latest business information is made simple with the Voice America Business Network. The professionals in the business world bring you live talk radio shows featuring an array of business topics, strategies for building wealth, sales and marketing, stock trading, investing, and business technology. Voice America business hosts are professionals in their fields and bring to the airwaves weekly business discussions that offer up-to-date information, advice, and education. The Voice America Business Network, the bottom line in business talk. 